From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm Mark Lee Shannon. I'm your host, and I'm here today with my friend Jessica Ann Schutz, right? Did I say it right? Hi, you hey, did. Cool. That's bad. I was because I didn't want to mess that up. Uh, <laughs> it's Thursday, July 30th, and we are recording this in the midst of COVID by Zoom. So, you know, I guess let's just say that I'm I'm in Akron, Ohio, kind of sort of in Cuyahoga Falls and you're in Akron, Ohio, right? So we're both in Akron, Ohio, right? That's where we are. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm right downtown. I've always lived here. So. And, and basically, you know, through the miracle of Zoom and Zoom is such a trip to me because, you know, not only do I get to talk to you, I get to look at you. And that's the best part because I we were just saying before we started that we hadn't really seen each other, talked to each other for a long time. But let me tell you how I know Jessica. Okay, so I know Jessica and what I remembered about Jessica is her enormous kindness to me. Because when we first met, um, we were both working for a company and it was my very, I think I was sober for one year just barely. No, I was not sober for a year. I was coming up on my one-year anniversary. And I was suffering from some pretty serious post-acute withdrawal symptoms. And our listeners out there, if you don't know what post-acute withdrawal is, basically when your brain starts to try and work again. And it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, for me, I had a lot of, you know, just emotional and psychological issues that were all jumbly good. They weren't working. And if you put stress on top of that for me, which we were both working for a very, very stress, kind of a stressful situation with stressful people, um, I had issues with cognitive recall. I couldn't remember things. So I we used to reach out to you as a lifeline and you were always that voice to me that was, I knew that I could get help from you and you would be kind. And if I haven't thanked you for that, I'm thanking you here now because it really made a difference to me back then. You were honestly one of the only bright spots of my time at that place was meeting you and having the conversations we did. And like, you were the only person who would sit down and talk to me about like Jason Isbell or, right. oh, you yeah. know, a lot of that mm-hmm. kind of music that I was into. I knew that, I always knew that I was going to have a good conversation with you and I always look forward to seeing you. Documentary photographer, a mall historian, which is awesome if you haven't gone to her, <laughs> I hope you'll talk about later. And you're a queen of the road. We talked a lot about being on road trips. You've got like over 6,000 posts and some of your photos are super amazing. Super amazing. Thank you. Thank but the you. Cool thing I remember talking about was that you always had like, you were hip to bands that I didn't know about. And I'm like, what? What? What, what is that band? And then I would go check them out. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's that's a band I would like. I would like that band. And I just like, how does she know about all these bands? Because I thought I was like super fancy, like, you know, music dude and knew about all things. And you were like way into knowing all these really, really cool things I didn't know. The other things we sh- shared and talked a lot about in our private moments was that we shared uh, a lot of the same issues of growing up our childhood things that we went through. And, you know, um, not a big surprise to the listeners of this show that I talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how uneven, I think that's polite way to describe my childhood upbringing was, you know. And so, you know, I really felt a kinship to you right away and you were in my tribe. 
And we also talked about the long-lasting effects on the fabric of who we were as people, how it was almost died in this fabric of our whole, of our DNA, those experiences that we grew up with, the way we thought about things, the way we reacted to things, and how we were always thinking about that. And we talked, and I think with you, I was one of the first persons at that company that I shared my recovery story with. Right, because I didn't want to talk about it then. I was still too new. You know, I was afraid that if I talked about it too much, then maybe I'd blow it. Right. Or I was vulnerable with people like, oh, because you know, a lot of people we worked with, you know, weren't sober like me. Right. So matter of fact, they were kind of on the other opposite side of that. You know, so you know, I guess what I want to do for this podcast, and you know, we talk here on Recovery Talks, the podcast, we talk about addictions of any kind, we talk about mental health physical disabilities, abuse of any nature, emotional trauma. And what we try to do is focus on people that have gone through that experience and kind of went, you know what, I need to do something here. And also we want to really talk to people that like yourself that have, you know, made some progress with it, you know, and because there's so many people out there that just lack hope, you know, and what we want to bring today and with all of our podcasts is, hey, you know, you can get better. You can get better. I don't know if well is ever a word we use in the recovery community, but certainly we can improve our lives. So why don't you, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about what it was like for you, you know, growing up and, you know, describe some of the things that you and I have talked about, whatever you feel like sharing. So my upbringing was simultaneously abusive and neglected. My parents split when I was pretty young. My dad was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic. He was very violent. And when the physical violence stopped, um, the mental abuse went on well into my 20s. Honestly, I, I still struggle with my relationship with him now. And I never realized how much being in the midst of all that chaos when I was young would affect me as an adult. So, you know, like anybody with with mental health issues, you just kind of push them aside and you continue to go about your life however you're supposed to do that. And um, so I had tried therapy here and there. I had made some, some inroads as far as like, why am I like this? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so anxious all the time? Like, I didn't, I didn't understand it, but I, at that point, had just kind of accepted it as, as who I am and this is, this is how I am. I'm screwed up. Like, I don't know how to fix this. I, I can remember as a kid looking at other people and other families and like I would visit my friends and go, wait a minute, this isn't my life. I'm not like this. My parents aren't like this. Did you ever have that experience also? For me, it was like going to my friends' houses, like, people who had two parents like the two-parent household made no sense to me or I had other friends who were just you know living with their mothers and I'm like wait your mom's not mentally ill like you don't have to take care of her every day like this is weird the idea of a, a healthy happy family is something that until I met my my husband and you know, I've been with him for a few years. Like I didn't, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that looked like. So you know, I was on and off with therapy, meds, all of those things, and um, found myself in a lot of you know abusive personal relationships over the years. And um, 
So I've, I left one of those around 2010 and just had a few years where I was on a bender, <laughs> you know, with alcohol and drugs and sex and right. everything else. And uh, you don't want to feel so you want everything, right? You want everything. You don't want to feel so. Give me that. I'll take that. Food, right. people, drugs. I want it all because I don't want to feel any of it, but I want it all. Yeah, I don't want to feel sad and lonely. I, I want to eat the rest of that pizza and I want to isolate and I want people to leave me alone. Through all of my, my boozing and everything, um, I met my husband, Kurt, on a, on a dating app. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't expecting to meet anybody. And we we met, we talked for a few months before we actually met. Like as soon as we met, I knew. I'm like, this is the guy. Right. I love this guy. He makes perfect sense in my life. He's a musician. <laughs> he likes to travel. But also just the way that he spoke to me and the way that, you know, he showed me love was something I had never seen before in my life or experienced. You guys both have a kindness connection, so I can tell. <laughs> you just your R's around you are just when I see you together. There's just a, a an air of kindness. So when I met him, um, we moved in pretty quickly. Um, probably, I think we were together maybe two months before we're like, let's move in, let's get a place, and let's do this. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my apartment where I still live. And sitting here, and it's the the absolute perfect Highland Square apartment. You know, it's over 100 years old. It has all these beautiful big windows and all the sunshine. And I was sitting there on the couch, and it was just miserable. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, why? Why am I so sad? Like, this is the life that I want. And I immediately was like, you know what? I'm not going to screw this up. I'm going back to therapy. Awesome. So I found a therapist up in Cleveland who um, she dealt with mostly like food issues and uh, addictions, things like that. And as I was talking to her, like she goes, have you ever been diagnosed with PTSD? And I was like, no, like nobody has ever said that. And she she said, you know, absolutely, you have PTSD from not only your childhood, but, you know, things that have happened in your your adult years. Mm. So I really took that to heart and um, wanted to find some PTSD-specific treatment. And luckily here in Akron, um, one of the hospitals has a Center for Traumatic Stress where all of their therapists are trained to deal with everything related to post-traumatic stress. Wow, that's amazing. So I got on the the wait list for that and um, I started therapy there a month after my wedding in 2016. So when I started, um, the therapist told me, you know, things are gonna get worse before they get better. You're you're going to start experiencing, you know, flashbacks, unwanted thoughts. Um, it, it could get hairy. And like, I've been there before. So I'm like, oh yeah, this is fine. Like I've, I've been through it. I had not been through the feelings of absolute terror and like 
being unable to leave my house. And I was, I was late to work all the time because I didn't know how to talk to my boss about what was going on. And honestly, that wasn't our relationship. She didn't exactly have kind of an open door policy. Right. When you, when you were feeling these feelings, was it, was it pre discussions with your therapist post? How was, how did the triggering work for you? Cause I think that's something our listeners would be really interested in to identify with their own issues. For me, it would be after therapy because at the time, you know, I was working full time. So I would have to go, I would go to therapy in the morning and then I would just go to work. And in the past that had always worked for me, you know, I could just kind of compartmentalize everything and deal with it later. And, but with this, it was just like sitting inside of my triggers for like an eight hour shift at work and then going home and, and not only having all of those feelings from, you know, reliving a lot of this trauma and like reliving it in different ways too. Like some days it would just be all bodily feeling, you know, uh, some days it would be paranoia. It's, it's very lonely. It's very isolating, you know, because I, I grew up in a house where you didn't talk about your feelings. You didn't talk about if you were in pain, you didn't talk about if, you know, someone was hurting you in some way or another. So like, I've kind of always gone through my life like that. And at that time in my life, like I was still doing that and not asking for help. So I lost my job and um, that actually turned out to be a good thing. It was a very good thing. Um, I had been thinking about leaving anyways and uh, she just beat me to the punch. (laughs) But I remember driving home that day, like after I had cleaned out my office and I pulled over into a parking lot and just took a deep breath and, you know, centered myself because I was the, with uh, PTSD, a lot of times I, I disassociate. So I'm there physically, but I'm not there mentally. Right. Not going to feel, not going to feel it. Nope. Right. And I, you know, I took a deep breath and I, I was like, what am I going to do now? And so I decided, you know, after I spoke to my husband about it, um, I was making my mental health a full-time job. I would figure out my bills. You know, money was less important than me figuring out why I'm like this and why, where these things are coming from and how do I get the skills to move through my day and not feel constantly anxious and and sad and scared because I'm not really any of those things. I think this is what we call, or I call in the, my, my recovery story is the turning point for me. You know, there could have been a lot of, you know, uh, clarifying moments in my alcoholism. You know, I mean, I've told a lot on this podcast about how, you know, yeah, waking up in a foreign country, coming out of a blackout, walking down the hallway of a hotel, you know, not knowing where my, home, my room is in my boxer shorts, having pissed myself. That could have been a clarifying moment to me, right? But I think more than anything about those things is when we have those traumas, when we have those those jolt moments, losing a job, you know, and then we do have that. And I love what you just said, pulling over to the side of the road moment, you know, where you just go, okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. 
that's really, I think, the starting way down the road to get off the dirt road, to kind of get back onto a normal, normal-ish highway of life where you just have that moment going, you know what, I'm going to do it. And that's the turning point. It took that moment too for, for me to sit there and go, what am I doing? What am I doing? What do I want to do with my life? You know, I had been working jobs for years that I did not like. I was not well suited for. And I was just, I was over it. So, you know, I spoke, I spoke to my husband and we agreed that it was in my best interest to just take care of myself. So I started going to therapy. I went to private sessions once a week and I went to group therapy once a week. I did acceptance and commitment therapy, which really, really helped. Um, If you're not familiar with that, it is basically the radical acceptance of where you are at and who you are and not judging yourself because of that, but also like figuring out what your values are and you know, what you need to be happy. And it was, it was actually in that group where I decided that one of my values was photography. I wanted to pick my camera back up again. I wanted to have a daily practice with photography. And had you done that before? Was that something you had practiced and studied for a while? I went to school for um, journalism. Wow. And so I have my degree. I uh, never worked in the industry because I wasn't particularly interested in how it was running. You know, like I, I graduated in like the late 90s. So it was after, you know, the OJ chase kind of changed the way we view news and reporting and things like that. So yeah, I have a degree in journalism. Um, I have always had a camera in my hand, like wow. since I was a kid. So you, you're making the turning point. And so tell me about the first few miles once you started down the recovery road. This is, I think, for all of us, some of the most poignant and most important part of the story because as people listen in, you know, they just don't, okay, I made the choice. I'm in, I'm, I'm in a recovery program. But for me, early recovery was kind of like that guy that, that gets a gym membership and he goes to the gym and he sits down on the bench and watches everybody work out. Right. Yeah. No, I know I should be getting, I, I know, but I, I don't know. I don't want to ask anybody how to do that machine. I, I don't, but I'm at the gym. I'm at the gym. And that's what my first attempt at getting sober was all about. I bought the membership. I sat on the bench, watched everybody else, you know, Tell me about your first few miles. Um, honestly, the first few months of therapy, I would go to therapy. I would come home and I would go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did a lot of hibernating. Mm-hmm. I would say probably the first six months. And like mental health recovery is not linear. Nope. It is not pretty. Nope. You cannot expect any of it to be... You, you'll have your, your moments of you know, oh, wow, that is why I feel like that. And, but then it's not solved. Then it's like, okay, well, how do I not feel like that? So it's, you know, mental health recovery seems to have a lot of layers and you're dealing with... I told a friend of mine, therapy felt like an hour and a half of sitting in a room with all of my ghosts. All of my ghosts and all of my skeletons were all in the same room all at the same time. And that's intense. 
you know, I, I, I totally get that. You know, I also had a, a, a difficult relationship with one of my parents and he, he passed last May, a year ago, May, right? And before, before he did, I can remember my partner at the time, you know, she, she said to me, she said, you got to go spend time with him. So for the past five or six months of his life, I was really trying to create on my end, that force on my end, some sort of finish and resolution, you know, thinking that that would work. When in reality, it was, it was probably not the best thing to do. I'm happy that I spent the time with him because I can, you know, look back years from now and go, dude, you made the effort. You know what I mean? You went in there and you tried to get a clean slate and you did this. But in, in fact, nothing, nothing really was changed. When you're deeply wounded in your childhood, you know, that's not something that's easily healed. And, uh, you know, that part of you, that wounded child is always going to be reaching out to your parents. Just love me, love me, pay attention to me. And it's not always the case. That's been a hard truth I've had to learn because a lot of my trauma is related to my parents. I still have a relationship with my mother, but I see how toxic my, my relationship is with her. And like, I still love her and I still, you know, I absolutely see myself, the wounded child comes out when I'm around her, you know, I want to take care of her. I want her to love me. I want her to acknowledge me. But, you know, the ways that she does that aren't what I need. impacted by looking at pictures of your of you when you were a child i've got a picture of me playing wobble with stackroom baseball in the late i'm like 10 right and i can see in my eyes that kid that was frightened that was abandoned that didn't know how to do anything and i i the first time i saw that picture i actually found it through fear book facebook and i asked somebody send me a copy of that and i got it when it arrived i broke down crying because I remembered that kid and how he felt. Do you have any experiences like that? Do you look back on pictures of yourself and go, whoa? I am only starting to be able to like dig into that stuff. Um, some, some, I had some sexual trauma that happened around my teenage years. Right. So that area is real hard for me to, to yeah. Yeah. go back to. How do you talk to that little girl, that little you, right? Because I want to talk... Right me and go, you know, but you know, here's the cool thing is I keep that picture in my office now. And occasionally I'll go over to him and I'll talk to that kid and I go, you're doing all right, man. You're doing all right. Hang in there. I've been doing that lately. Um, I found a bunch of my old like cassettes from when I was a kid because I've been a music fan my entire life. So I've been kind of revisiting teenage Jessica through, um, I have mixtapes that I had made starting in like, 91 and they go up to about 2000. Music is time traveler stuff, man. It's magic dust. It just takes us. It just gets you right back to where you were and, and where you were feeling. I, it's almost a sensory perception. Like, you know, I can almost smell my dad's car, you know, when I hear certain songs that he used to play on his 8-track. I mean, like, I'm there. I'm like, whoa, I'm there again. I'm time traveled back. Music is the one thing that does time stamp a lot of things for me. So, I mean, there are certain songs that I'll hear and I, I do remember like riding around in my dad's big brown pickup truck listening to like the Eagles or... 
right? That probably ruined the Eagles forever for you. <laughs> so you're you're in. You're you're you you've got a couple miles. You you've got some. You know you're you're getting past. You know the early stuff. You know you are you know you're getting in the room. You're you're kind of processing, right? Because we have to when we come to acknowledge what those things are that we did. You know, and you know, a friend of mine says to me, "Why you know why are you so active in the recovery community?" And I said, "Because every time I'm I'm out there helping somebody, it." It's like I have this eraser that I can go back and erase some of the crazy crap that I think of that I don't like about myself when I was using and drinking. It's like I have an eraser. So, I mean, how do you, I mean, I don't want to make the analogy of your eraser, but I mean, where, where did it start to make the turn for you that you started thinking, you know what, this is kind of like getting better. There's some blue sky here. Where did, where did the blue sky moments start to happen? Um, it was probably, I would say, a year into therapy. A lot of uh, trauma therapy is a lot of skill building. So, I, you know, a lot of worksheets, a lot of repetition. And, you know, when your brain's broken, that's what you need. You need that repetition. So, about a year in, I saw, you know, me like working through my, my challenging beliefs worksheet in my head as I was like out engaging in the world. And I'm like, oh, this stuff is actually working, you know, and I, I started to feel better. Um, at the same time that all of this was going on, I was in therapy. My mom was also dying. Um, and so, you know, I'm grieving my childhood and like all of these things that shaped me and made me who I am. But, you know, I'm also like in real time losing my mother. So like this entire, the entire experience has just been like, I feel like I've been juggling like five or six things all at the same time. And, and there are days that it's overwhelming and I just, I wake up and I look around, I'm like, all right, today is, I'm just going to take care of myself because I know that I'm of no use today. Right. You know, and I think that especially in the recovery community that, I, that that is my tribe, there's a lot of stress on, you know, let's just stay in this 24-hour compartment right now. Let's not, you know, maybe today I can't think about my, you know, my parents. Maybe today I can't think about... Will there be any work at the other end of COVID? You know what I mean? You know, I mean, I, I, I can't process all that stuff. You know what I mean? I, all I can do is like, okay, I've got this airtight cubicle I'm living in, which is for me today, July 30th, 2020. This is it. I can't really do anything. And sometimes it's like, okay, the next five minutes... Let's get through this. What do we do? Go outside, play with my dog Martin. You know what I mean? Because thank God, my totally 100% accepting of me all the time. You know what I mean? Except when I don't feed him fast enough, but that's a different story. But, you know, it's like living and coming, bringing yourself into the moment. I'm thinking of an Eckhart Tolle uh, quote, which says, you know, you know, you've got to, when things are happening to you, you know what I mean? And we're trying to process things. And I relate it to addiction and recovery and mental health. When things are happening to you, you got to look at them or you got to be able to develop the skill to look at them, and I'm paraphrasing, as if you had chosen them to happen. So all my musician friends, for instance, right, we're all going through a place where there's no work for any of us, right? It's changed everything. You know what I mean? For you, you know what I mean? You had to make your way through that you know, that, that issue with, oh my God, I'm, I'm coming to grips with my mother and I'm losing my mother at the same time. 
You know what I mean? So where did, where did that, how did you get through that? Where did you come to the place where you were able to get some sort of resolution with that? Plot twist. Um, my mom did not die. She, um, thankfully, total last minute, she got a liver and she had a liver transplant. And so I remember, I remember sitting there, you know, waiting because it's, it's a super long surgery. Um, I was there with my husband and my brother just hanging out and waiting for her. And I remember like in those moments, sitting there and having that time and being in the quiet of, you know, the main campus of uh, Cleveland Clinic and sitting there and thinking, you know, I'm going to be all right. Even if everything around me is not all right, I'm going to be all right. That's so powerful, you know, because I think when we start saying that to ourselves, I think that's when for me is, you know, I use the phrase blue sky, but when you start seeing, you know, that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be, I may be okay here. I could be okay here. For me, about 18 months in is when the post-acute withdrawal symptoms stopped, right? But again, I was working with, in a very stressful situation with employment where there was a lot of unpredictability as far as what I was going to get every day, you know? But I was able to still be able to manage that, manage that and be able to say, okay, okay, I'm still okay. I'm going to be okay. It's turning. And also the confidence for me was that I hadn't used in 18 months. You know what I mean? And that was like, look, dude, you can do this. It was probably the longest period of sobriety I'd had up to that point in five or six years, you know? And then when I got two years in, three years in, it was like, wow, okay, maybe this might work. When we talk about recovery, we all talk about, you know, that moment where things can go, the wrong way, right? You know what I mean? So, you know, when you get into a place where you feel like, you know, the danger Will Robinson signs are coming up or you see the flashing lights or something, what are the things that you do? How does that work for you? With COVID, um, I haven't been able to go to my therapist. And well, actually, I had quit therapy one week before we went into lockdown. I'm not cured. I'm just at a I, I felt like I was at a point of, okay, I've, I've learned all these skills and I feel comfortable and confident enough to go out into the world and just do these things for myself. But um, just lately, I, I know that like, you know, I'm depressed. Like I haven't seen my friends in months. Like I, I travel constantly. I haven't gone anywhere. Um, and that's hard. That's hard when you're used to like going out and seeing things. Like we had just spent, uh, 10 days out in uh, the desert in January and saw all these amazing things. And I mean, I'm thankful that's the last thing I did, but still I'm like, man, my entire life has changed and it is affecting me. So instead of just letting it continue to drag me down, I immediately called and got a recommendation for a new therapist. So that's kind of where I am today. So, I mean, when we talk about our stories today, when we talk about today, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, is you know, the COVID-19 survival, which you kind of drafted to. So that's something that I hear a lot in, in all of the recovery type communities is what we're doing. 
in COVID, you know, and I, for me, it's going to Zoom meetings, right, and hanging out with other people. But, you know, it's all a bunch of blah, 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 blah. The big thing is I got to connect. I got to connect with other people that are like me, that are in the same, have been the same experience as me, you know, it's like you, like other people that can, when I say, man, you know what, I'm effed up today and I'm not feeling me. I'm feeling like I'm not going to use, but I'm feeling like a bunch of old, like, you know, it could be really great to go to McDonald's, Arby's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, then get some spaghetti and then go get a pizza and then sit down and eat the whole thing in a room and then just feel terrible about myself. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we as alcoholics and addicts do. We supplement our old behavior with new messed up behavior. Right, that's what we can do, and that's just as dangerous for me, you know. So, the bottom line is, I gotta connect with people. I gotta be able to go. You see me because I'm not doing so good. Because I can tell you this about a Zoom meeting: there's an awful lot of not okay that can be covered up with a cool background and good lighting. An awful lot. Right. So, tell me about what you're doing when you feel like uh is happening. I think the the biggest advice, the biggest piece of of information I can give you today is like you have to show up for yourself. Okay. And when you're you're a child of abuse, you learn to not ask for help. And once I, you know, got to a place where I figured out my worth and I was like, no, I, I deserve to be happy and I deserve to be loved and I deserve to, you know, have good friends and all of these things, that's when I started showing up. So yeah, I just, I show up for myself. Like if I, if I feel terrible, I, you know, I might go out and go for a walk. Um, Even if it's just around the mall, like I'll go, I'll go do that. I mean, that, that informs my work. So (laughs) that's kind of a good thing. Before we go, I really want to, I really want to give you a shout out about your work too, because what we haven't been in connect with since, you know, we we weren't working together, we would see each other out place at music events when, you know, when, when your hubby would play. And actually I did a a gig or two together with him and, and, you know, um, which was a blast, but um, you know, I think that the thing is, is that, just doing that, that that creative work and you take your camera with you, right? So you're really, and I think that, you know, because of the way we are, of who we are and how we grew up and what we see and what we feel, I think we've got a natural innate ability to be observers and reporters, right? Because growing up with childhood trauma, growing up with, you know, the way, you know, in, in similar circumstances, you know, we did not talk but we watched people, right? Yeah, we're used to blending into the background. People say to me, well, dude, you're an empath. And I'm like, it's not It's not a magic skill. It's just about growing up and, and trying to figure out which grownups in the room might hurt me, right? Mm-hmm. And knowing that. And so I was always on alert and watching. My radar was really good, pulsing back and forth. So I think that really, and I see that in your work, when I look at your work, and I'm hoping that you're going to do a, a little bit of a plug for yourself as far as Instagram before we get done here and all these things that you're doing on your work, because I really want people to become aware of, of, of your lens and with the glasses that you see the world through, because I think it's really spectacular, you know? And so, but I think that part of all of that has to do with we take what is this feeling inside, right? And because of who we are and, and the, the, the tools we get inside, we're able to have these glasses to see the world differently. And I think that's, if there's any silver lining to 
to recovery and having gone through what we went through. It's that we've got now this really badass pair of glasses we can put on to see the world, you know? So tell me a little bit about, you know, what you're doing and what your work before we get done here. Probably about four years ago, I started taking pictures of abandoned or nearly empty shopping malls. Um, You know, anybody who lives in the U.S. knows that like over the past 10 years, retail has completely shifted. And COVID has obviously sped up the process. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there are just empty malls sitting all over the U.S. And they're still open. You know, there might be like one or two stores in them. But, you know, there are these huge places where people used to go to have fun and now they're completely empty. And um, at first I just, you know, I started taking pictures of the malls because I found it interesting. And as I got into treatment, I realized that going to the mall was kind of a way for me to reconnect with happy memories from my childhood. Like I grew up right around the corner from Raleigh Acres Mall. So like I've always joked that that's like my, that was my childhood home. I am from Raleigh Acres Mall. You did not want to be in your house. You wanted to be out there somewhere else. I get it. Well, you go to the mall. It's it's a fairly safe environment. You know, I didn't live in a safe neighborhood. Um, the power is always going to be on there. Friends are always going to be there. And now you look at malls and there's, there's nothing going on. So um, I've traveled to, I think, like six different states at this point, just going to malls. I usually... I'm also going to see a friend play, you know, so I, I have a show to go to at night, but then during the day I'll go and photograph these malls. So looking at my work now, I realized that a lot of the feelings that came along and came up in therapy, the most prevalent feelings are all in my work. Like I have channeled all of those feelings of abandonment and all of the like loneliness like being mentally ill is lonely sometimes because you don't want to feel like a burden and i mean now i know like to people i love i'm not a burden but to be able to look at my work and see all of this you know loneliness and abandonment and it's all channeled into my work and not towards myself like i am beyond thankful for that awesome. So how can our our listeners find your work? You can find me on Instagram. My username is flannel kimono. Flannel like the shirt, kimono like the jacket. Listen, our time is done. I can't thank you enough for coming on our show and talking to us. And we haven't talked for really a bunch of years, but it's just like we just saw each other yesterday. You know what I mean? It's so awesome. And I, again, I just want to thank you for all your kindnesses to me in the past. I mean, it, it was a really difficult time for me starting that job and I didn't really have all the tools to do it and you made it so much easier for me, you know? So, okay, so we're going to wrap up and I just want to tell our listeners, thanks for hanging with us on this edition of Recovery Talks. Stay tuned to Rock and Recovery for more episodes with more guests as they share their journey from the darkness to the light. And until then, let's all stay standing. Let's stay sober and steady on. Thank you, Jess. Take care. Bye-bye. You're welcome.